I'd like to ask a simple question as we start out this morning. Does anybody here love a good love story? Some of you need to rekindle that marriage relationship. Huh? Come on now. How many of you love a good love story? You know, like the story of Romeo and Juliet. Should be up on the screen there. Uh, how about one that I did not know about that I came upon? Elizabeth Browning Barrett and Robert Browning. Has anybody ever heard that love story before? By the way, two poets that came to love each other through their poetry. How romantic. I could see all the guys out there going, oh, brother. <laughs> and then, of course, my favorite love story of all time, a true love story, The Princess Bride. Come on now. <laughs> guys, as you go home this afternoon, whatever your wife says, the right answer is as you wish. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? In all seriousness this morning, one of the greatest love stories in all of human history is found in an obscure book in the Old Testament. It's tucked between Judges and 1 Samuel, and it's called the Book of Ruth. It's a story of an older man, a younger woman, and yes, a bitter mother-in-law. No amens at that point, please. And that's just the introduction. So I know you're already there in the Book of Ruth. What I want you to do, know is we're in a series called unexpected heroes. And I want to remind you, Pastor Matt did an exceptional job last week on the story of Naaman's servant girl and her choice to love her enemies and do good by them. Do not forget that message. This morning, we're going to take a look at the life of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi and some of the events that surrounded this unlikely marriage. And we're going to reflect on the lives and attitudes of both Ruth and Naomi. And I want you to know we're going to see some pretty cool principles that will guide and help us today. So as you know, all love stories have a great setting. And of course, this story is no exception. I don't want to assume that all of you know what the story is. So what I want to do right now is I'm just going to kind of take you through the cliff notes of the story because it's four chapters and we can't go all of them. But I want to kind of tell the story and then we'll jump into the sum of its parts. Uh, the story begins with a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who due to a famine in Bethlehem, decide to move to Moab with their two sons. Just by way of history, Moab's only about 60 miles away. It's a seven to 10 day journey. Uh, they go there with their two sons, Malon and Kilion. While in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies and their sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. According to the Old Testament law, this was forbidden However, it was the time period of Judges, and if you have your Bible open right now in the book of Ruth, all you have to do is look right above, in mine it's on the same page, to Judges 21 verse 25, and here is what the time period was. It says, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he or she saw fit. That's the background of the story of this book of Ruth from Judges 21-25. As the story goes, unfortunately, after 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also pass away, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth alone as widowers in a foreign country. Upon hearing that the famine in Bethlehem had ended, Naomi, at her wit's end, decides to return home and urges her daughter in, daughters-in-law to stay in Moab and find new husbands. Orpah reluctantly decides to stay, but Ruth, out of deep love and loyalty, insists on staying with Naomi, famously saying what a lot of us know as one of the most famous statements in the Old Testament, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay. And then it says, your people will be my people and your God, my God, Ruth 1.16. Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem where Ruth goes to glean in the fields to provide for both of them. She happens to glean in the field of Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech. Boaz takes notice of Ruth's loyalty and kindness and shows her favor and protection. Well, of course, here's where the love story comes in. Eventually, Boaz and Ruth marry, and their union is blessed. And between the two of them, they are both mentioned in the lineage of Christ. She gives birth to a son named Obed. Now, that's the story at a glance. Are you ready to jump into it? 
Uh, out of the Old Testament stands this testament to God, his daily and continual working behind the scenes, providentially working in the lives of ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things. And so this morning, if you need any encouragement on just how extraordinary this story is, even the New Testament records the highlights of this book in the lineage of Christ and its beauty in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what it says as it looks back to God's blessing on this union. It says in Matthew 1, 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, as we get into this, I want to give you the three principal players. We have Naomi. She's the mother-in-law. We have Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law. And then we have Boaz, who is a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband. Following cultural norms, Boaz, in this story, acts as the kinsman redeemer and marries Ruth, ensuring her security and continuing the lineage of Naomi's deceased husband. Now, the story begins with an unfortunate and an impossible situation, as all unfortunate and impossible situations always seem. They're tragic, unexpected. Three women, all widows, with literally nothing left. We know that because, again, when they return, Ruth goes to glean in the fields. So with nothing left, are faced with the decisions, what do we do now that our husbands are dead? We're in a foreign country with no hope and no help. First principle this morning I want you to remember, please get it down, I have three total principles this morning. The first one is this, when things look bleak and you don't know the answer, it's better to trust God than yourself. When things look bleak and you don't know the answer, it is way better to trust God than to trust yourself. I want you to notice the text, if you would, in our first subpoint. I want you to remember, watch out for bad reasoning in the middle of what you think is an impossible situation. This is the first time I'm having you actually look at the text. Would you notice Ruth 1, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. I have a lot of text, so I'm not going to ask you to stand as we read the scripture this morning. But I'm going to read Ruth 1, 11 through 15. And I want you to watch for the bad reasoning that Naomi has as she's, as she's talking to her daughters-in-law. Verse 11, but Naomi said... Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now I want you to notice a few things here. Do you see all of the bad reasonings in these verses? First of all, she thinks that the only way for God's blessing is marriage and birthing sons. Now is that true? She believes the Lord himself is against her. Again, is that true? She tells the girls to go back to their gods, which is a direct contradiction of both culture and scripture. Naomi cannot see beyond her circumstances because she's caught in the middle of them. Can anybody relate? She has the philosophy that she has to fix the situation. And she cuts corners. She makes untrue statements, believing that they are, in fact, the only option. You've got to watch out for bad reasoning in the middle of impossible situations. Uh, number two, in the middle of impossible circumstances and situations, you've got to watch for God to provide another way. Friends, there is always another way. God is the God of answers. Can I just remind you, have you ever heard of the Red Sea? Have you ever heard of God shutting the mouths of lions? 
Have you ever heard of the virgin birth? Have you ever heard of the feeding of the 5,000? Wait, how about this? Have you ever heard of salvation? God taking an impure heart and through confession, repentance, and acceptance of the mercy of God, he washes your heart clean and white as snow. Now that is God making a way. Do you feel like you're in the middle of an impossible situation? Maybe with your family, like she was. Do you feel like you're in an impossible situation at work and you can't see things getting any better? Do you ever feel like you're in an impossible situation with your future because you're just not sure what's going to happen? Can I remind you, please do not take matters into your own hands. God will make a way. Matter of fact, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We need to start watching for God to provide a way instead of working in our flesh for our own way. Where is Jerry Van Cleve when you need him? Hey, there you go. It also reminds me, in impossible circumstances, we need to change our perspective from horizontal to vertical. You see, when we take matters into our own hands, this kind of humanistic philosophy unaccompanied by prayer and counsel will turn your family into conflict, your workplace into a war zone, and your future into something crafted and created by your own hands, leaving our Heavenly Father no place to work. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lead on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Unfortunately, hang with me, moms, for a second here. I'm not trying to offend all of you in the room. Unfortunately, Naomi reminds us that not everything a mother-in-law says is the greatest counsel. Hang with me, moms. Don't... In just a second, she provides great counsel and we'll get there, okay? Friends, if you're in a situation like this, I remind you, don't take matters into your own hands. And thank goodness Ruth didn't let Naomi make matters into her hands. Ruth said, no, where you go, I'm going, regardless of what you tell me. So... Before we move off of Naomi and on to Ruth, I want you to see one more thing related to feeling like a situation is impossible. And I think you will find this incredibly valuable. And by the way, I've caught myself feeling the same way as what I'm about to explain to you. And it's a way that is wrong. Number two, I want you to watch out for a critical spirit. A critical spirit. It gives death to everything that it touches. Take a look, for instance, with me, if you would, at Ruth 1, verse 19. I'm going to read 19 through 22. I say through 21. Look at Ruth 1, 19 through 21. It says this. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Remember, Orpah is not with them at this point now. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And then she responds with, hey, so good to see you. It's so great to be back home. That's not how it went down. Verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. The name, the word Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that, A, Naomi doesn't even receive the welcome well. She comes back and and she says, call 
me bitter. So just give you an illustration. She bursts onto this scene and in a dramatic, overt, intentional statement, a retorts of sort, when people say, is this Naomi? She responds, giving full vent to pain, bitterness, and anger against the Lord Almighty by demanding a new name and declaring what it will be. You will call me bitter. And by the way, this is her introduction back into town. Second, I want you to see that upon her introduction into town, she levels four accusations against God in verse 20 and 21 that I just read to you. Let me highlight those four briefly. She says, number one, against God, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Number two, the Lord has brought me back empty. Number three, the Lord has afflicted me. And number four, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, one of the famous commentators, Daniel Block, in his commentary about Ruth, says this about her entrance back into town. He says this, Naomi may have come back home in faith, but hers is a flawed faith. She is unable to see human causation or that she might be the source of some of the bad decisions or problems in Israel's famine and her own trials. The woman the neighbors greet is a bitter old woman. She does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this sovereignty she ascribes is without grace. It's an omnipotent power without compassion and it's a judicial will without mercy. Let me sum up what he said. She's bitter, she's critical, and she makes no attempt to hide it. In fact, she declares it. Wow. Makes me ask, brothers and sisters, do we ever have a critical spirit? So before I keep going, I just want to define what is a critical spirit so we're all on the same page, know what we're talking about. A critical spirit arrogantly views things from their own perception, meaning the rest of the world revolves around them. It judges, that means it perceives things from its own perspective. It is easily provoked and it accounts and remembers every wrong so that when you enter their presence, they don't see you in the positive light of your presence that you're bringing. They see you in every hurt or critical thing that has been done to them by you in any manner and never carries any hope of being pleased. So if you were to apologize or you were to say, I'm sorry, they will still remember that and not forget. Such an attitude damages the critique, that's the person being critiqued, and the critic as well. This kind of attitude is what Naomi had. And my question to you this morning is, do you have tendencies toward this kind of attitude as well? Notice I didn't say you're that way all the time. I'm asking, do you have tendencies toward this kind of attitude? Matter of fact, after the four rebukes of Naomi in the text, I can even hear God saying, do I do anything right in your opinion? And look what Naomi's critical spirit cost her. Now, I just want you to calm and think about what her critical spirit cost her. Because most oftentimes, we can't see it in ourselves. Number one, a critical spirit cost Naomi her relationship with Orpah. The scripture never records that they ever saw each other ever again. Makes no light of it. And she left that relationship in bitterness. The last time her daughter saw her, she was bitter and against God. Second thing it cost her, a critical spirit affected Naomi's future relationships in Bethlehem. Meaning, when you walk into a relationship, you hope it starts right. I make all kinds of mistakes in relationships. I forget breakfasts that I plan with people, and it pains me. I just feel terrible. And then on top of that, we do things that we don't intend. And here, this relationship starts out in Bethlehem with her declaring to everybody, I am bitter and I'm grumpy. Don't mess with me. <laughs> know anybody like that? Matter of fact, let's just go there real quick. Can you go to the end of Ruth chapter four? 
This is how grump, I wasn't going to go here, but this is how grumpy and bitter Naomi was. Go to Ruth chapter four. And if you're engaged in this story, you're really going to like this. Ruth chapter four, verse 13. This is the end of the story. Sorry, I'm, I'm ruining the conclusion a little bit, but hang with it. This is how grumpy and bitter she was when she arrived. Watch how they're responding after all of this time. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Verse 14, watch this. The women of the town who knew she was bitter and angry after all this time, watch what they say to her. The woman said to Naomi, Praise to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman and redeemer. It's like they're still trying to even convince her. See, God hasn't forgotten about you. See, God still loves you. He cares about you. Please remember this, Naomi. That's the women of the town telling her, giving her perspective. And then, guess what else they say? Verse 15, they continue to tell Naomi, he will renew your life, sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. That's what they're saying at the end of this marriage and the birth of this son. Man, she was really critical and she was really bitter. Number three, a critical spirit affected Naomi's relationship with with God. You know, we forget that our attitude and our heart hinders our walk with the Lord Her view of God is not a right view of God. I just showed you what it was. Her view of his work in her life, she believes that God is against her. And then the fourth thing, a critical spirit affects our view of Naomi for all time. I'm 4,000, 6,000 years later talking about a critical spirit as a result of her bitterness in the text where she proclaims to an entire town, don't mess with me, I'm upset. So what's a critical spirit costing us? I'm suggesting to you this morning that a critical spirit like Naomi's life and like her family, a critical spirit is ruining our family. It's also ruining some of our relationships at work. It's also ruining some of our ministry relationships in church with one another. And worst of all, it's ruining our own relationships with God. Every time a preacher preaches, are you critiquing their message or are you listening to the delivery of God's word to your heart? Can you not get out of your head something bad that the preacher has done and then you sit there with your arms crossed going, oh brother, here he goes again. But I remember what he did five years ago. Have you ever kept a child or teen or yourself from a ministry because you just don't like the leader or the small group leader or the volunteer or you name it? I just want you to know it might not be the worker. It might be a critical spirit. Amen. Every time one of your kids does something wrong, do you approach them with compassion or with anger? Do they feel like you think they can't do anything right? Every time something happens at work, do you believe the best or do you stew on what that other coworker did or did not do instead of concentrating on what you are or are not doing? I just want you to know, and it breaks my heart, that a critical spirit may be killing us. We may not even see it. And I thought to myself, just hang with me. I thought to myself, what is the worst situation any of us could be in that could cause us to be bitter and have a critical spirit? And I remember Job and all that had happened to him, right? Everything was taken away, all family, all wealth, all health. And yet Job's response was, Job 1, 20 and 21. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell down to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. I'll translate. There was no critical spirit in Job. 
If there was any person on the face of the earth who over any time had just caused to have a critical spirit, you and I would certainly agree it was Job. First, I want you to notice the difference between Job and Naomi. In the midst of devastating circumstances and no hope, all children dead, all wealth gone, Job still praised God. And in the midst of that, three men dead and gone, Naomi criticized the Lord. Wow. Do we have a critical spirit? Here's some examples of questions that you could ask to test whether or not you do or don't. I found myself guilty of some of these, so it pained me as I wrote them. Here's, here's some. You have inward hurts that you cannot give up, nor will you forgive or forget, because holding on to them gives you a leg up on the other person. You may have a critical spirit if you cannot see your own errors, yet easily point out the errors in others. You might have a critical spirit if you typically have a hard time offering grace or mercy, feeling that it is too generous or too kind uh, and that more justice or punishment or action is needed. Think about if we scrap that onto God's character. Out would go salvation, wouldn't it? Um, You might have a critical spirit if most everyone else is in the wrong and you seldom are. And then this one, uh, you might have a critical spirit if you're judgmental with your thinking of other people, watch this, but you hide it or justify it because you feel like you're the more mature or you have more wisdom, but ultimately you don't plan to lift a finger to help them. You simply find comfort in criticizing them. I just ask each one of you as brothers and sisters, what if someone held you to the same standard? How would you feel? This kind of attitude, I remind you, is not Christ-like, nor does it reflect the kind of attitude that Paul instructed us to have toward one another and God in Philippians 2.3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better, better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So can I pronounce something this morning as a great church family? I want to pronounce as of this morning, right now, by choice, Grace Church will be a critical free zone. Can I get an amen to that? Whoo! All right. Now, there are a few naysayers, so I want to speak to you just for a second. In studying this, I want you to know there's a difference between a critical spirit and critical thinking. And here's what I mean. A critical spirit is we're going after the person. A critical thinking is going after the ideas. Let's make sure we know the difference. All right, so are we ready to move on? Everybody's like, praise the Lord, let's get off the critical spirit. I'm with you, me too. So... The ultimate root of a critical spirit is distance from God and pride. And that is where Naomi found herself in the text a long way from family, a long way from Bethlehem and a long way from worship and praise. She knows it. Ruth knows it. Yet that is when we begin to get a good look at the plan of God that is at work behind the scenes. So here's our two principles so far this morning. We only have one left. The first one is when things look bleak and you don't know the answer, it's better to trust God than yourself. Number two, watch out for a critical spirit. It is death to everything it touches. So in our story, if chapter one was the worst of days, chapter two through chapter four sets the stage for the best of days. And that's when our unlikely hero, Ruth, steps on the scene as the central figure of the rest of the book that bears her name. And if you couldn't see the hand of God at work in chapter one, the remainder of the book is a beautiful story of God's providence, provision, and protection. Take with me and look, if you would, at chapter two, verses one through four. And I'd like you, if you could, to number three, learn to see the hand of God at work in your life. Learn to see the hand of God at work in your life. Listen as I read Ruth chapter two, verses one through four. 
Amen to that over there. (laughs) Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. One of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible, and yes, I love this book, is this phrase, as it turned out. I call this the great parenthesis. You know, where God's at work behind the scenes, but we can't really see it. And you know, when you provide parenthesis in a sentence or any text, you're wanting to tell people behind the scenes, watch this, watch this. This is kind of needed so you can understand it, but it's not kind of really in there, but it's in there, right? That's what this is. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. Verse four, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. So God's hand was on the life of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. They just didn't completely know it at the time. We get to see it now. Uh, let's just review for a moment all that we know about Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz up to Ruth 2.4. And as we do, I'm going to ask you, can you see God's work behind the scenes in their life? Here we go. Naomi leaves Bethlehem with a husband and two sons, returns only with a daughter-in-law, Ruth, a foreigner, and no husbands and sons. This daughter-in-law, regardless of Naomi's attitude won't leave her, clings to her, and pledges to stay with her even until death. I could stop right now and we would all say, that was God's hand at work right there. Keep going. She feels like God's against her and is struggling personally and has no hope. Ruth, she's a foreigner who's lost her husband, didn't, they know, na, excuse me, didn't know Naomi 10 years earlier. She's encouraged by her mother-in-law to stay with her and her homeland. Instead, she declines to stay and pledges to go with her bitter and angry mother-in-law to the death, if necessary, and journey to a foreign land, no matter how treacherous or dangerous the journey, she considered it worth it. She finds herself in a land participating in a foreign custom of gleaning behind the harvesters and is working hard to provide for both her and Naomi. And she is doing, as she's doing so, she just happens to be gleaning in the field of a relative and has no clue. In contrast to Naomi, isn't Ruth's attitude pretty amazing? Her actions alone to this point are pretty heroic and unlikely. Pastor Matt said last week, God uses unexpected people to do pretty unlikely things. I would say that this is one of those moments. And I want you to notice, because I'm going to go away from the critical spirit and move toward the can-do attitude. Ruth had a can-do attitude. She chose the harder route. She clung to something foreign instead of something comfortable. And in faithfulness and hard work, God provides for her and providentially places her in a field of a man related to her mother-in-law. And to top it all off, all of this without either of them knowing she was gleaning. Then there's Boaz. Hang with me as I review him. In chapter two, he says that he's a relative, or it says he's a relative, Naomi, on the husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. It says he's a man of standing, which means he's respected and wealthy. We also know from Matthew 1 that he's the son of Rahab, the same former prostitute who hid Israel's spies and survived survived the collapse of Jericho because of her faith in God. Imagine his childhood stories growing up, right? And it just so happens that a young widow of a relative is gleaning in his field without his knowledge. And on top of that, in verse four, Boaz, this is the coolest thing about him at the beginning. Boaz greets all of his harvesters with a spiritual greeting and they respond back with a spiritual greeting. If you had any idea how rare it was in that that time period, you would be amazed. So can you see the hand of God even at this point as I scripted all of the setting and outline? And now watch point B. Nothing happens by pure chance. And no one happens to just be anywhere. 
God divinely orchestrates people and times as he wills. Keep in mind, I'm going to reference a foreign king who declares that in Daniel 4.35. A foreign king declares what I just shared with you. He says in Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Where are you at in your life right now? What's your story? What's the impossible situation that you're facing? I want to remind you if you're discouraged this morning, or if you're anxious, or if you feel without hope, or if pain is a part of your life and you're struggling, or if uncertainty is something that you just feel gripping you every day, or if you feel like you have no answer for what you're supposed to be doing or what your future looks like, I want you to remember that no answer gives time for the right answer from God. Now, as we look at the rest of the book, I want to show you how God was at work behind the scenes, and then we're smooth sailing out. Are we ready? Here we go. God uses Ruth and her can-do attitude to preserve the lineage of Christ. Ruth is different. Instead of a critical spirit, she has a can-do attitude. Ruth blesses Naomi six different times with her can-do attitude. And we're going to go through those briefly and then we're at the end. So number one, Ruth's can-do attitude is found in chapter two, verse two, when she takes initiative and gleans in the field. Ruth says, I can do this. I can provide for you, Naomi. Let me go work. Instead of saying, oh, look at us. Woe is us. Instead, she gets up and says, I can go do this. Number two, Ruth stays close to Boaz's servant girls. Would you turn to chapter two, verse 22, please? Chapter two, verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Again, the time period of judges where each person does what's right in their own eyes. So notice verse 23. So Ruth obeyed and stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth is told to stay with Boaz's servant girls. And Ruth says, okay, I will and obeys her. Number three way that she blesses her. Ruth obeys Naomi's instructions regarding Boaz. Would you look at chapter three? And I'm going to read verses one through four. So chapter three, one through four, one day, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Okay, that's matchmaking. <laughs> okay. Where you will be well provided for. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Verse 5. I will do whatever you say. Wow. Now, I want to give a couple observations in this phrase, I will do whatever you say. Parents, first of all, isn't this the attitude we are going for in training our kids? God, whatever you tell us to do, that's what we will do. That's what we want. We want godly children, right? Now, we also want children that obey us, right? So we're reflecting God's authority. And as we do, we're trying to train them up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. So we want them to obey us. <coughs> Excuse me. We want them to obey us. So I want you to know, this is how it kind of went in our family growing up. They're all older now and they obey us, so we're, we're fine. But this is what I used to do. I used to go to my kids and I used to say, okay, do you know why you don't obey mommy and daddy? And they go, no. 
And I say, it's because you have a sin nature. And they go, oh. And I say, would you repeat that? Say it after me, sin nature. And then you know what they did? They go, no. (laughs) And I said, exactly. (laughs) Again, they're good now, but that's when they were growing up. We all have a sin nature. And here we find Ruth in the middle of this story, not looking for a husband, not looking to bear a child. She's already been married. And she says to her mother-in-law, I will do whatever you say. Wow. Uh, By the way, has God prompted you by his Holy Spirit to serve? And yet our response sometimes is, well, maybe somebody else will do that. Or we make up an excuse I want to remind each one of us when the Holy Spirit lays that prompting on your heart, let's get rid of excuses and have a can do attitude. Now, I'm just going to meddle just for one second. Can you hang with me? When somebody comes from the church and says, will you help? That's one of those potential opportunities. Now, again, I can't script the situation and I don't know what you're facing, but sometimes the reason we're asking is so that the kingdom of God can grow, so that people can come to faith in Christ, so that others can see the same hope and heavenly father that you have and they can experience for themselves. All right, so next, she listened to her mother-in-law and said in a roundabout way, her mother-in-law, you should marry him. Which also leads me to a couple other observations. When it comes to choosing a spouse and lifelong marriage partner, please don't ignore the advice and counsel of your parents, especially if it's godly counsel. Please, please. You could save yourself a lot of heartache, please. And then I get to redeem myself with moms. Not all advice from mother-in-laws is bad advice. This was not bad advice. Fourth blessing, Ruth listens to Naomi's instructions to wait. Notice verse 16 of chapter 3, if you would go there, please. After this was over, it says, verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Verse 17, and added, he gave me uh, these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, smart man. Verse 18, Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ruth listens to Naomi's instructions to wait. I want you to know there's a timing to everything we do. In Galatians chapter 6 at verse 9, it says, Do not let us become weary in well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I have this firm belief that in America, we don't give enough time for the spiritual fields to ripen and then harvest the fruit that's there. We want it like the McDonald's drive through We want it now. But sometimes salvations and baptisms take time to cultivate. Discipleship relationships are time where we invest in people's lives and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Ruth listened to Naomi's instructions and didn't take matters into her own hands and said, wait and let him act because she wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do. And she didn't understand if he was first in line, second in line, third in line, or what the scoop was. Sometimes we have to wait for somebody else to have an opportunity to act. It's a good lesson for Jonathan to learn. Come on. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Number five. Ruth is included in the lineage of Christ. This is so absolutely beautiful. I don't have time to read it, but Ruth marries Boaz in chapter four. And between them, they have a son. His name is Obed. You might not remember his name, but you might remember the name of his son. His son's name is Jesse, who was in turn the father of David. And you all know David, the giant slayer who became Israel's second king. The sixth way that Ruth, uh, the sixth way that Ruth blesses Naomi is that she demonstrates faithfulness by loving someone that was very hard to love. Now, I don't know about you and I don't know your family situation. I don't know your work situation. I don't know your ministry context or situation, but I do know that there are people that are hard to love. And I do know that we reflect the character and nature of Christ when we love the unlovely. 
When we get rid of the excuses not to love them, we become more like Christ. When we get rid of the reasons that we have built up as to why they don't deserve grace and then offer them grace, we become like Christ. In this moment, even the women of the town in verses 14 and 15 proclaim to Naomi, as I read earlier, this woman loves you. And it was a foreshadowing and a beautiful picture of the love of Christ when we didn't deserve that same love. Now, I want to finish with Boaz. God uses Boaz to foreshadow Christ as well and serve as kinsman redeemer. This is it. There were actually two possible redeemers in the story. The first was excited at the thought of adding land. But when he understood that there would be a bride he was gaining and preserving a relative's name, that would jeopardize his own inheritance. And so he bailed out of the real estate transaction and proposition. The second in line was Boaz and his goal as a redeemer was exactly opposite. It was selfless. It was a foreshadowing of laying down his own priorities for the good of another that brings to mind Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Friends, can you see the hand of God all over this story? So I want to conclude now and ask a couple questions. Number one, if you came here this morning, maybe you're mixed up in the horizontal and you can't see the vertical work of God in your life. Can I challenge you, encourage you, get out of the circumstances for a moment, spend some time alone and ask God, God, what are you doing in the midst of this and proclaim your willingness to wait? Number two, I want to uh, ask you, can you see God working in your life and would be willing to ask somebody else if they see how God is working in your life? I have two pictures to illustrate this application. The first one is a picture of our interns right now. Uh, you'll hear a little bit more about them next Sunday. But what I love so much working in student ministry and having some hands in adult ministry is I get to see how God has drawn these students to this point, if you were to ask them three years ago or four years ago, are you going to be an intern at Grace Church? One of them up on the screen wouldn't even know where Grace Church was and had no idea anybody that was in the church. And here Morgan is with us. Praise God. I'm just sitting here saying what I love is getting to see, by the way, in that picture is somebody that wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ two years and one month ago. How cool is that? God at work in time and space, and we can't see it because we're caught up sometimes with a critical spirit in the midst of our circumstances. Let's go to the next slide. The next slide is a picture of Blake Gooding. Some of you know him. In March, after Ignite, God was drawing and working on his heart. And he had come to youth group for multiple times. Matter of fact, three years almost he came. And that night he comes running up to me in youth group and says, Pastor Jonathan, I need to be saved. Now I would like to note, I would love if all of those would be that simple. That would be wonderful and amazing. But he comes up to me convicted by the Holy Spirit and says, I want to be saved. And I'm like overwhelmed. We go into the office. He prays to receive Christ. Guess what his next response is? I want to go tell my mom. I'm like, where's your mom? She's like, well, she's downstairs in Jerry Van Cleve's class. So we go down all the way right over here. We knock on the door and I say, Rita, his mom. I'm like, Rita, can, can I talk to you for a second? And she goes, is everything okay? And I'm like, oh, you bet it is. Why don't you come out here and find out? Okay. And the door is kind of partially open. And he shares to his mom how he came to faith in Christ. Go back in. They have a little mini heavenly praise party right there. Okay. And then we go back upstairs and we tell the students and they have a praise party. And during that time, Ella Tweedy is sharing her testimony, sharing of what God's doing in her life. And I'm telling you right now, it is so great when we remove the critical spirit, have a can-do attitude and watch God work. Right? Woo! It's so cool. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask two questions. Two simple questions. 
First one this morning is, do you have a critical spirit? Do you have a critical spirit? May not be right now. May have been in the past. May have been something you might have even forgotten about. I'd like you to examine yourself and ask, do I have a critical spirit? And, and if you find yourself that you do, would you take a moment right now and confess that to God? Just take a moment. Confess it to God. Second question. Do you find right now that God has brought you to a point of a can-do attitude like you are ready, like you want to serve, you're ready to step in, you can't wait, you've got this can-do attitude, or maybe you're already serving, but you want to continue to increase that influence. If you're in that spot right now, like Ruth, would you take a moment and ask God, God, how do you want me to continue to serve in my life? Open up some opportunities that are specifically designed by you for me. Would you take and pray that? My final thing with your heads bowed and eyes closed is not a question because I've asked my two questions. It's a simple statement. And the statement is this. If you are not part of the family of God and in the lineage of Christ, I would strongly encourage you to become part of the family. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you have a question about a critical spirit or a can-do attitude, or you want to become part of the family of God, we have a group of elders that every week meet in this prayer room right over here. If you're sitting there, it's to your right, out those doors back there. It's a prayer room by the nursery for nursing moms. You can go there right after the service. If you want, I'll be down front and I'll help take you there. Or if you want to talk to me. We want you to be part of the family of God and we want to give counsel or help if you're struggling or excited about any of these areas. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for doing your work this morning. Thank you so much for these dear people. I love them so dearly. Thank you so much for the blessing of your scripture this morning and this amazing story of Ruth, Boaz, and your providence and protection and provision. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.